And now if you'll turn with me in your Bibles um, to Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and also there's an addition that's not in your bulletin. You might turn and put your thumb in Matthew 19, 3 and 9, 3 through 9. So this is Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And now to Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The word of the Lord. So Eli Finkel is a, uh, a psychiatrist and a marriage scholar at Northwestern University. And about six years ago, wrote an article for the New York Times where he outlined his conviction that American public life has been through three different distinct phases in their views of American family. Uh, the first one occurred from between the 1800s to the 1850s or so, which is what he calls the institutional marriage. This is when people thought of marriage for the purpose of survival, for production and for protection. Uh, emotional connection between the two was nice, but not essential. Uh, from the late 1800s, though, through the 1960s, it turned into what Finkel refers to as a companionate marriage, where you got married because you wanted to be loved and experience love from someone else. But since that time, Finkel argues, there has been a new sort of version of marriage that he calls the self-expressive marriage. He says this, Americans now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. That ought to sound familiar because I've talked in the past about this predominant reigning philosophy of our day that we call expressive individualism, which is that idea that the really only guiding ideal of life is to find out who my true authentic self is and insist that all others around me respect that identity. Okay, look, so you don't have to be a social scientist to realize that when Jesus starts to talk through the valid reasons to end this most foundational relationship of marriage, it's going to look insane to the culture around us. So the question is, why do it? Why would Jesus even waste his breath? Well, I would submit to you that it's because Jesus understands that there is no vision of the good life that's ever going to be complete without some emphasis on protecting marriage and married individuals from the pervasive and corrosive effects of our own sin. In other words, Jesus believes that we are our own worst enemies when it comes down to marriage, which is why he lays out this astounding standard for his people. 
What is that standard? Well, I think I can sum it up before we start. But please keep in mind the Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 passages as we do. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were quoting from an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 24.1, hoping to establish a policy that they had developed where a man could freely, at his own pleasure, divorce his wife simply by giving them some kind of duly attested document of such. Jesus responds by saying that a husband that's going to be that irresponsible has done nothing but make himself and his future partner he might raise to nothing more than an adulterer. The only situation, he says, in which divorce and remarriage were possible was when the second, seventh commandment had already been broken. Serious sexual sin. That kind of divorce, though never desirable, was permissible and allowed the offended party to move on without the stigma of adultery. Now look, we're not looking at the Apostle Paul this morning, but Paul would go and pick this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he would take up this issue of someone who finds themselves married to someone who is not a Christian. And he gives a handful of instructions. He says, if the non-Christian person is willing to stay married to you, then you, can, you should do so. But if for whatever reason they are not willing, then you could consider yourself, he says, unbound to that person. By extension, Christians would go to understand this passage to include someone who persisted in abuse and threats without repentance and was then judged by the leaders of the church to be treated as if they were an unbeliever, regardless of their protest to the contrary. I'm going to return to that topic here in just a minute. But there it is. <laughs> That's Jesus' standard. And I hope you can see that there's a whole lot more than we can say just in 30 minutes this morning. But by way of introduction... I hope that you're getting used to hearing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and his deep concern for justice. I think that divorce is very much of a justice issue and framing it that way is extremely important for this reason. Because my guess is that when most of you think, oh, here we go, the preacher's on his way to start railing on divorce, we mostly expect the need to sort of pound on protecting the marital union. Your preachers talk about how passive and, and permissive and flippant we are with our covenant promises. And I don't think any of that's untrue. It's a good thing to remind us on a regular basis that we've got to protect our marriages from our own complacency, our meanness, our laziness, whatever. But the interesting thing is, is that's not the whole story on divorce. Because I believe that there's an equal amount of attention that has to be paid to the false visions of marriage that oftentimes ignore injustice that's going on right under our noses. And Jesus exposes that injustice and allows for divorce in those circumstances. For instance, that quote from Moses in verse 31 describes this certificate of divorce. That was a document that was given those Old Testament people for a woman's protection. How did that work? Well, the certificate prevented the man from leaving his spouse going away for a while, and then returning sometime later to reclaim his rights over her. Does that make sense? In other words, there's all kinds of examples in ancient Near Eastern literature to show that women were treated like property, chattel. And Jesus says, no, marriage is not something that you can waltz in and out of. And so my point is this. I have to speak to two very different people this morning when the subject of divorce comes up. On the one hand, there's people that, that need to hear that the lure and the temptation of divorce, it needs to be fought against and resisted because it comes out of a sinful intention. But the other sort of group, 
I think also needs clarity and confidence that the divorce that you did experience doesn't need repenting of. Because divorce is traumatic and it can leave us a, a residue of pain and guilt in the hearts of his victims. So please have a little mercy on me this morning as I'm trying to speak to both groups at the same time. So bear with me. But what I want to unpack this morning are three simple ideas. Number one, when we need to stay in our marriage. Number two, when we are allowed to leave. And then number three, how not to get divorced. Just some, con some, some concepts there as we end. Let's start this first one, when we need to stay. I realize that's kind of a funny way to sort of phrase this because in Jesus' view, the default of marriage is to maintain the promise as long as you and your spouse are alive. That's when we need to stay forever. Mark 10, 6 through 9, Jesus will say, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now look, think of Jesus' rationale here. There is no other relationship where you are described to be one flesh. My children are never described as one flesh. Why? Because children leave. They go start new homes and their new marriages. But you and your spouse, by virtue of your vows, and by the way, your sexual union, are one flesh. Which, by the way, means that divorce is always an amputation, spiritually speaking. And those of you who've been through it, I'm sure would say, yeah, no joke, right? And so Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. But I really want to take that question head on. Why would I want to stay in a marriage that I'm unhappy in? Really? But take the question practically speaking. I can think of a couple reasons. The first reason is this. Because conflict in marriage is so often personality driven. In my experience, divorces of convenience are so often driven by my experience of couples who are just convinced that, 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 that there's something fundamentally incompatible between me and this person. You start to feel this finality about the way they are. But here's the thing. Christian maturity is learning to live with your own personality in such a way that it's being geared to serve others. That's what I'm learning, I hope. But in the same way, my personality is trying to learn to be defeated in the places where it hurts other people. In other words, I don't think you can begin to entertain the question and struggle of divorce without entertaining a whole host of questions about what makes us people, how do people change, what is Christian growth in this regard? And my question to the person who's entertaining this idea is, is that possible in your worldview today? Second reason I would say to stay in is because bad expectations about marriage, they can be rethought. <laughs> you know, for troubled marriages, you, you constantly hear a refrain from your friends that say, you know what, this is not what I signed up for. And I feel like I've talked to a number of people for whom their marriages were crushed, not because they cared too little about their marriage, but because they cared way too much. <laughs> In other words, it's possible to invest so much of your expectations of marriage to be the sole source of fulfillment and happiness in life that nobody was ever going to meet those expectations. And because of it, they were crushed and wanted out. Look, marriage, just like any other of God's good gifts, has to be protected from our own idolatry. 
that our hearts want to make out of it. Marriage, by the way, is not the central growth agent that God has given to his people to become better people by. The church, by the way, is that institution. That's another sermon for another time, though. The third reason to stay, though, is because life circumstances change. Dr. John Cox explained to us a couple months ago that it's oftentimes in the midst of child rearing, especially preschool age children, when you're at your lowest ebb of marital happiness. But here's the thing. As hard as it is to, to sort of deal with children and the exhaustion that comes with it, there's little more than that child needs than for you to fight like crazy for your marriage. I've often heard divorced couples often manage their guilt by saying to themselves, well, you know what, I would rather my child grow up in a house where there was real love rather than deal with all this conflict. But here's the thing, the statistics are against you when you say that. You need to pick up a copy of Judith Wallerstein's landmark study called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, where she finds that despite parents' constant appeal to life would be better for the children, almost no adult children really, who she surveyed really actually felt that way. The fourth reason to stay, and I think, is because forgiveness is possible. <laughs> Look, if there's anything that the cross of Jesus creates, it's this capacity not to retaliate when sinned against. But forgiveness, though, is a learned behavior. It takes lots of reflection. It takes a lot of meditation on how Jesus leads us into it. In other words, offenses that are committed against me, they can be overcome. But obviously, it's very hard to believe that when I sort of look out in my life and I just cannot imagine a future living with this person that I've come to hate. It's difficult. Look, in my, in my experience, limited experience with divorced couples, including many couples that I counseled and officiated at their weddings, I've come to this conviction, conviction that there are really few more feelings of feeling trapped than feeling trapped in a marriage that you don't want to be in anymore. Because in that, if, and if you're in that state this morning, I do think that there's, a, there's an urgency to stay in long enough to figure out exactly what the impediments are. What are those things that are keeping me from rejoicing in my marriage at this time? And here's the other thing. Any attempts that people make to work through those issues, if you think that you're going to get through those issues in isolation from Christian community, or at least godly wise community, I, I think it's going to fail. <laughs> in other words, don't trust yourself to be the best judge of your marriage. You're going to need to be in some kind of community. Don't hide when these things come up. It happens to the best of marriages. And really, one small little caveat. I do think that a lot of times people want for their communities to, to bear all the weight of their struggles. But the truth is that's limited because no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. And when the accusations start to fly and the he said, she said starts, there's oftentimes limited things a community can do. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there is great benefit in someone else knowing that you're struggling. <laughs> laughing with Kurt about this a while back. When the first phone call that you get is not on your way to the lawyer's office. There's a benefit in knowing that. So Jesus gives us a sense of when we need to stay but secondly, we need to know when we are allowed to leave because I'm nervous at this point because when you focus on the reasons to stay, I think it's very easy for preacher types like myself to live up to this fact, to, to, to avoid this fact that Jesus 
allows for divorce in some cases. I would even go so far, and I choose my words very carefully here, the divorce can actually be seen as a blessing to those people for whom their marriage has indeed become physically detrimental to them. In other words, what protection does God afford those that is actually remedied by divorce? Well, four thoughts to think about as we do this. First of all, first thing to consider as we consider this is this. Allowed to leave doesn't mean has to leave. In other words, divorce is not mandated in the Bible when one partner has a sexual relationship with someone else. Now, there's plenty of examples of people who came back from the edge and learned to work their way through these horrific experiences. But secondly, what Jesus is saying is, is that adultery kills the covenant. Adultery kills the covenant bond that was promised at your wedding and was sealed on your marriage bed. And so it's actually the same reason why you're free to marry if your partner passes away and dies. When they die, the covenant is destroyed. Sex with someone else destroys that. Hence, the offended spouse is free to marry. The third thing we've got to think about, though, is what it means in the Bible when it says being unequally yoked, which is a complicated notion. Because Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, like I was saying before, where you had all these converts in Corinth who found themselves married to unbelieving spouses. What should they do? Well, Paul says, look, if your partner is willing to stay, then stay with them. You want to know why? Because they will benefit from your Christian growth. Your children will as well. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then don't stop them. And you can let them leave without a fear of conscience. The fourth thing, though, is this one. Spouses who decisively demonstrate that they are not Christians have the same instruction. Now, look, I'm full disclosure here. I'm in agreement with the scholars who say that Paul and Jesus' comments suggest that you may kill the covenant through a pattern of, of unrepentance for abusive and dangerous behavior. They're unable to be lived with. Your children are in danger. I'm not talking about being in danger from them being an annoyance. But I can say this. When someone gets to where they are in an, an ongoing abusive relationship where someone else, had, that person has been confronting them and calling them to repentance, there is a season in which the people of the church, the elders of the church can come and say that it is appropriate for us to treat this person as if they are an unbeliever. Because we don't see any of the signs of repentance and the Holy Spirit present in you. But I would even say before that, during a time when all of a sudden things have become dangerous for you, a time of physical separation may be exactly what the doctor ordered. Look, and here's a news flash. If they pull a weapon on you, or if they hit you, you're going to have a very hard time convincing me that, that that spouse is not fully within their rights to get out and vacate that house to seek help. Look, I really can't stress this enough. I want us to be aware as we consider the topic of divorce of the fact that on the other side of divorce, it can oftentimes leave the person who was the victim feeling like they're walking around with the scarlet D, the scarlet letter divorce on their shoulders. And I'm trying to be a little provocative when I say that a biblically sanctioned divorce can be a blessing to that tortured spouse who is living in the aftermath of that kind of betrayal. Does that make it easy? Absolutely never. 
But it can calm the conscience when a divorcee hopes that God may one day have better things for them. So that's the second point, when we're allowed to leave. Thirdly, and I want to wrap it up with this, how not to get divorced. Look, I've been doing campus ministry for 25 years and now this job for three. And that means I've done around 120 some odd weddings and about, I don't know, five or six of those have ended in divorce. And I've seen the pain that it causes, even for the ones that were for biblical reasons. But I've seen a lot of common themes that have come out of that that, I don't know, may be helpful to some people that are in difficult marriages uh, this morning. Handful of thoughts. Number one, we have to be aware of what I call pre-invasion techniques. I've almost never seen anybody have an affair that wasn't prepared for. In other words, more times than not, the preparation begins where one party begins to, begins to demonize their spouse in the hearing of someone else of the opposite sex. Look, when I make a decision to give full vent to my worst thoughts about my partner, those thoughts belong to trusted friends who will hold us accountable, maybe to pastors, maybe to counselors. They do not belong in the ears of someone you work with of the opposite sex. And when I see myself doing that, it ought to be a big red flashing light. Ask me what I'm doing. Why is this happening? The second thing we have to do, though, is discard this whole right person myth. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer says that you've got to get it out of your head that there is a right person out there for you. And what if I wake up one day and realize that I missed my soulmate, my person I was really intended to be with? Look, the Bible is clear on this. We all marry the wrong person. That's called a sinner. That's who they are. And God's purpose in marriage God's purpose in marriage is not to restore a missing part of your soul. His purpose in marriage is to teach you to become like him. <laughs> and you know what he did? He married someone who is an annoying sinner and stuck with them. So therefore, I've got to get out of my mind that there was this right person thing out there. And by the way, that second person is not going to be any better than the first. It's just not. The third thing we need to do is begin to count the cost. I know that in the midst of nurturing a fantasy of, of divorce, there is a myopia that takes people over. And all you can see is this overwhelming desire to escape. But in that moment, it is worth getting someone to help you think through, what are exactly my obligations to the community around me? Not the least of which are my children. Ooh, a number of years ago, I sat with a, a, an older gentleman who, who was weeping in the back of, uh, uh, in, the, in the midst of a church because his daughter had asked her stepdad instead of her to walk him down the aisle rather than her. It was hard. And what he said to me was, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about that when we split up so many years ago. That is hard. The fourth thing is, though, like I've been saying, we have to get in and stay in community. Look, we make habits all the time that result in what we believe will be blessing in our lives. We brush our teeth. <laughs> uh, we clean our homes. We, we make regular phone calls to our aging parents. Why then do we work so little at nurturing a habit that includes willingly letting other people in on the ecosystem that is my marriage so that somehow they can speak into it? You know, our friends will almost always see the problems in my marriage before I do. 
This was funny. By the way, college students, a little side note here. This is very true for your dating relationships as well. I got to where I had a policy in campus ministry that I would not do a wedding for a couple who had the universal disapproval of your closest friends for your relationship. Why? Well, because you know what? You don't know him like I know him. Or you just don't see her the way I see her. Actually, I do. <laughs> because I'm outside of it. And in the midst of all of the love and all of the hopes for the future, things get clouded, do they not? How much more so once after we're married do we need the blessing of other people's simple conversation about the things that I say and do in my marriage to protect it, to get in and stay in community? Do people have an opportunity to get in on your life? It's worth asking. Fifth thing, we need to get counseling. <laughs> And I mean this even, actually maybe even especially, for marriages who presently you would say we're doing fine. You know, most therapists I talk to say that by the time a couple makes it into their offices, they've already worked through whatever guilt they might be feeling about leaving their spouse. Oftentimes that, that visit to the counselor's office is just checking boxes. But marriages that last, they don't assume that they're okay just because they're in a season when the conflict is low. As a matter of fact, when the conflict is low, that might be the best time to stop and say, are we doing okay? Are we missing each other in the midst of the mayhem that was the last decade, <laughs> depending on how long the children are? Are we growing at becoming a better couple? And number six, and I'll finish with this, I think we stay in challenging marriages that don't have Jesus' definition of divorce. We do it for Jesus' sake. Now look, that sounds like a nice guilt thing for a preacher to say. I get it. But I do think that there's two powerful things that Jesus gives us in order to stay in marriages that are hard. The first one, he's already done for us in the Sermon on the Mount. This whole sermon opened up with the Beatitudes, which if you think about it, is a pretty amazing guard against getting selfish in your marriage. I was able to dig up a quote from an ancient church father named John Chrysostom who said this. He said, for he that is meek and a peacemaker, and poor in spirit, and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife or husband? He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? See what he's saying? At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, those Beatitudes put you in the proper frame of mind. The better question is, how do I, come, how do I become the kind of person that the Beatitudes are describing? Now, that's a good question. But the second resource I think Jesus gives us comes to us most vividly in the Old Testament book of Hosea. You ought to read this this afternoon when you go home. In that book, God goes and tells the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. And he commands him to stay committed to her despite her continued faithlessness. And as you read it, you begin to realize that the moral of the story is not hard to figure. Jesus, knowingly and voluntarily, married an unfaithful person, you and me. <laughs> and what that means then is that I can stay faithful knowing that because he established that, there is no one that can touch that acceptance. I still wonder how much of the torture that I put myself and my spouse through in our marriage is due to the fact that I'm trying to grasp at something from her and from this relationship that only Jesus is able to fulfill. And that somehow these struggles can be attached to a, to a suspicion 
that that is not certain. That his faithfulness to me is somehow as fragile as my own whims are about marriage. Look, I don't know, maybe we are in the times of self-expressive marriage. Maybe we are. But what if we, what if what we expressed, what if what we were expressing in our self-expressive marriages was the safety that comes from saying, I'm no longer afraid of being an unlovable person. What if that's what we were expressing? Or what if, what, what if we know that we are loved and it keeps me from having forgotten that God granted me permission to get out of a marriage that was racked by betrayal? I don't know. If those two things are true, then yeah, let's express that and maybe find hope for people that are struggling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you come alongside all of us? Because whether we are married, whether we are divorced, whether we are single and anticipating marriage, or whether we're just on the outside watching it, Father, we, we need grace in this area so much. Because my past, even as I speak, rises up in my own head and condemns me. And I don't think I'm the only one in the room. Father, we need the relief of knowing what you preach to us, that you are the great faithful one and you are the great forgiving one. You even forgive those who come to you humbly, realizing that they failed in their marriages. Would you help us then? Would you give us insight? Would you give us grace as we move forward and we sing your praise? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.